0: Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting november twenty first. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, Carol Chen helps us celebrate the beginning of the official overeating season with a salute to cheese. And our own Christy Nicholson tells us about the new cyan community. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, Carol Chen, her official title, one of the great science titles, Cheese Application Researcher at the Center for Dairy Research at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I was in Madison in October and spoke to Carol Chen at a picnic table right outside Babcock Hall, home of the Center for Dairy Research. Hi, Ms. Chen. Good to talk to you today.
1: Hello, Steve.
0: So tell me about your background. You're a food scientist.
1: Yes, I'm a food scientist. I have a bachelor's degree from the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and I've been with the Wisconsin Center for Dairy Research for about 15 years.
0: And you are a cheese expert.
1: I'm not the big cheese here, but I do know a few
0: details about cheese. So tell everybody, you know, what's cheese? I know that it's a dairy product, but that's pretty much all I know. What is cheese?
1: Cheese is actually a really ancient food. And of course, cheese is made from milk, and you start with milk, and you end up with cheese and whey, as in Little Miss Muffet. Um, and our center does actually research with both the cheese end and the whey end.
0: So what's the difference between cheese and whey? What actually is whey? Everybody's heard the nursery rhyme, but I don't know what whey is.
1: So you start out with milk, and you ferment the milk, which means that you have a, a starter culture in the milk. and Some
0: kind of bacteria. Some
1: kind of bacteria. And um, you, you clot the milk, you use, uh, rennet, which is, um, at one time was derived from the stomach of calves. But, and is um,
0: that a protein or an enzyme?
1: Right, it's an enzyme. So
0: it's both a protein and an enzyme.
1: Right, yes, enzymes are protein, yes. So you clot the milk, then you, it looks, at that point in cheese making, um, the vat of cheese looks like hard jello, except for of course it's white. And you cut that up, and you, uh, let some of the, the serum express from the curd, and that is the whey.
0: And that stuff can really smell bad, can't it?
1: Oh no, it doesn't smell bad at all. At that point in cheese making, um, it's, the, uh, the whey is, uh, it's sweet. And other than that, it really doesn't have a lot of flavor. Kind of a dairy milky flavor, but not exactly milk because you've removed some of the proteins. It has very little fat in it so it um it's thin
0: i was thinking i remember hearing about some farmer in vermont where my sister lives who had used whey as a uh a fertilizer on his fields and people were really upset because i guess at that point it might have smelled really bad
1: it may have because um after they when they make they separate the curd from the whey, and the curd ends up as the cheese that whey um has many many uses um, It's all. It's often further processed and used in other foods as an an ingredient, a supplemental ingredient. Um, Some older ways to use whey are to was to land spread it because it has a lot of um, nitrogen in it, it, so it's a good fertilizer.
0: A lot of protein in it.
1: Protein. Mm -hmm.
0: And uh, what are some some modern uses for whey?
1: They use it in the baking industry. They use it in the beverage industry. Uh, They use it. Just fine, any food product, actually.
0: What does it actually do, though? If you put it, it just adds protein, or it adds some kind of. Uh, does it do anything to consistency? What, why would I put it in a baked good?
1: Because it adds nutrients. There's a lot of protein, and there's also quite a few minerals in whey. And whey is very low in. There's virtually no fat in whey. Okay, so
0: now let's get to the the real meat of the issue: the cheese. So, the cheese is the other part of the dairy. It's it's the fat, and there's protein, and And what else is there in cheese?
1: Moisture. There's a lot of, there's a lot of water in cheese, believe it or not. Um, so your main components are moisture, protein, fat, and in some cheeses, there's a little bit of, um, like a mozzarella cheese, there's a very, very small amount of, of sugar. Um, and there's quite a few minerals. Cheese is high in calcium and phosphate and other minerals.
0: And those bacteria, they're still in the cheese. They're
1: still in there. They're in there, um, and a lot of them have a lot of beneficial qualities. And then there's the bacteria that you add, and then there's a natural flora of the cheese as well. Um, and they both of those bacteria help to age that cheese.
0: The, the bacteria—it's a good thing, a good thing <laughs> so to age the thing. cheese. Yes. And the bacteria are alive. If I buy fresh cheese, those bacteria are still in there, cooking.
1: Yes, they're still in there. However, um, cheese uses the any residual sugars that are in a young cheese are typically fermented by the bacteria in that cheese so once all those sugars are fermented the bacteria are alive but they're essentially starving (laughs) they're a little bit dormant so they're they're not necessarily reproducing but they are there
0: so cheese will taste differently as you age it because the bacteria are digesting the sugars
1: sugars and proteins and in some cases fat
0: now What's the difference between, you know, cheddar cheese and, uh, limburger cheese? How do, are there different bacteria? How do I make one versus the other starting with the same raw materials?
1: You know, as a consumer, that's a really a good question because if you look at the ingredient label for cheddar cheese versus limburger cheese versus mozzarella versus eustalipia, they all have the same ingredients. Wait, well, what
0: was the last one?
1: Eustalipia. What's that? It is a finished bread cheese. And it's a, it's a unique cheese. Um, you essentially take cheese and after it's manufactured, you slice it thin and then you, the traditional way is to, um, but bake it in a, a hearth oven and it browns on the outside.
0: That sounds really good.
1: You'll have to try some.
0: <laughs> so how do I make all these different cheeses with the same set of ingredients?
1: So cheese starts out with milk. You add cultures, enzymes, and salt. And the main difference is the bacteria start, bacterial starter culture that you add to the cheese. And there's a wide array of bacteria that you can add.
0: So take me through the, the, the actual process whereby the different bacteria are going to turn my milk into cheddar versus say Swiss cheese. What, what are the bacteria doing that makes the final product different?
1: You've really hit on the, the art and science of cheese making with your question because, uh, Different bacteria require different temperatures to grow. They grow at different rates. They have different enzyme packages that they use as they grow or in, they use utilize the raw materials in cheese. So um, the rate of acid production, which is the rate at which the bacteria ferment the sugars in the milk, um, varies. And that, of, in turn, will affect the flavor and will affect the texture of the cheese. So a cheese maker manipulates the ingredients they add and then the temperatures at which they make the cheese, um, and that helps to develop the different flavors. Another te- place that bacteria come into play, they're not only very, very important during the firma- fermentation of cheese, they also, um, there's sometimes we refer to them as secondary starter. They're bacteria that are not growing while we're making cheese in the vat, but they're growing in the cheese as it's ripening. So those bacteria also strongly affect the flavor and the texture of the cheese.
0: How do they know when to start?
1: Well, they're hungry little critters. I mean, their their job is to multiply. So what they do is they take up the sugars and they they use that sugar as an energy source, and then
0: they're not doing it in the, in the vat. They're waiting until the cheese is finished because of the different environmental conditions at that point.
1: Yes. The secondary starter are, um, are working with a different set of, they use a different food source. Uh, Swiss cheese is an interesting example of that because you have one bacteria that produces acid in the vat and you have a second bacteria that grows and that's the bacteria that actually, um, ferments uh, it's raw materials into flavor producing compounds and gas CO2, which forms the eyes in Swiss cheese,
0: the big holes.
1: Yes, correct.
0: So, uh, basically it's, it's all time dependent. There's one thing that's waiting for uh, a step to be achieved and then they're going to kick in and start doing their thing. Correct. Tell me what, what actual cheese science have you personally performed?
1: I started out in the analytical group, so I did a lot of analytical and microbiological analysis. And then um, during the, low, the first low-fat craze, um, I helped develop protocols for making lower-fat uh, cheddar, Swiss, mozzarella. Um, that was pretty exciting. And then another project that I've worked on is making uh, mozzarella um, using cheddaring equipment.
0: Oh, well, that would really be interesting for cheese companies to be able to make two sets of cheeses with the same stuff, right?
1: Correct. And um, mozzarella is typically what they call a pasta filata style cheese. After the curd is formed, they heat that curd up and they stretch it, and then they reform it into blocks. So it was quite a trick to figure out how to get the right functional and flavor characteristics but not using that second heating step.
0: And that process has been figured out and developed?
1: Yes, and it is, um, commercially viable in a few cheese plant plants in Wisconsin.
0: And they are actually doing that now? Yes, they are. Uh, That's pretty interesting for those of us who like both cheddar and, uh, mozzarella. Although anybody who's putting cheddar on their pizzas, I just, I don't understand you people.
1: (laughs) It is a little greasy, isn't it? It has a nice cooked flavor though. (laughs)
0: That's true. So tell me about, um, uh, some of the, some of the cheese physics. I saw a poster in the halls here at the Center for Dairy Research on stretch and melt characteristics of cheese. So what's that all about?
1: Well, um, after I worked on uh, manufacturing protocols, then I kind of grew into the area of of cheese functionality. And that really refers to um, machining the cheese, either uh, slicing or shredding. And then also when you melt the cheese, what kind of attributes does that have? Um, what I'm really talking about is how it looks, its appearance on the pizza pie, how it stretches, and how it melts. And those things are really important because part of the reason why cheese consumption is still on the rise in the United States is because cheese is finding its way as an ingredient into other foods like pizzas, breads, things like that. So it's really important that cheese has a consistent uh, functionality in these finished foods.
0: Like uh, if you want to uh, put some cheese in a jalapeno popper, you want to make sure that it doesn't explode out of there in the microwave but but melts nicely inside without leaking out before it's served.
1: Yes, exactly. Those are the types of projects that we have worked on. And essentially um, we accomplish that by um, altering some of the rates of acid production in the vat because that influences the chemistry of the cheese and then how it will perform in its end use cheese has to conform with the cooking conditions that somebody else specifies. So, we're kind of they tell us what conditions and how the cheese needs to perform and we can tweak the cheese so it has the proper functionality. Also, um, something I haven't brought up is cheese is really a continuous protein matrix with entrapped fat and water. And when you control the machinability and the functionality, the key is really paying attention to the protein, what the state is and how the proteins themselves are relating to each other and minerals and other components.
0: So in that way, it's similar but different to ice cream because ice cream is a 3D fat network.
1: Yes, very good.
0: That's because I interviewed guys at Ben & Jerry's last year about ice cream science.
1: Yes, that really uh, shows you what a food scientist does. Um, Food science is a unique field because uh, we apply a lot of chemistry and physics to uh, a food product, a food system. And how um, and then, in the long run, we get to actually eat the food and evaluate it, so it really sets it in our head what we're doing in terms of the chemistry and physics of of food
0: so are are new cheeses just being made all the time? Is somebody coming up with a brand new cheese that's never existed before?
1: That is true. Um, the, the, that's difficult though, because consumers tend to um, purchase something they recognize, but there are. Initially um in the history of cheese making um every town had a cheese factory and they produced a unique cheese. Um and they made one cheese factory down the road, cheese factories down the road from each other, one made a cheddar, the other one made a cheddar, but they might be very different character. Um over- because
0: of the individual bacterial species that they happen to be working with, they didn't know about that. They've been making cheese since before anybody knew about bacteria, right?
1: That's true. They're maybe using different starter cultures and they may be using different parameters, cook temperatures and things like that, which made their cheeses unique. So, um, but in terms of creating new varieties of cheese, what, what we, you'll more typically see is the fact that, um, people are, the world is becoming a smaller place. So, um, somebody may have traveled in Finland and had this Eustalipia cheese. And now they're finding, taking that cheese and learning how to make it on, in U.S. cheese-making con- conditions. Um, and then they're manufacturing that here. So it looks like a new cheese, but it's actually been around for centuries. Right,
0: because now we can make any cheese anywhere, or you can just have cheeses shipped anywhere. So anybody in the world can get a cheese that they wouldn't have been able to taste 100 years ago, ever. Correct. What's Is cheddar the most popular cheese?
1: Cheddar is still the most popular cheese, but mozzarella is really gaining.
0: Yeah, and uh, what's... So in the United States, we're talking about. And uh, so cheddar, mozzarella, and then Swiss cheese?
1: Probably Colby, Monterey, Jack. One other thing that I should mention, um, especially in the state of Wisconsin, we have our manufacturers, large manufacturers, who are making millions of pounds of cheddar and mozzarella and Colby and Monterey, Jack. But we also have a lot of cheesemakers who are smaller and they're really responsible for the resurgence of some of the um, specialty artisanal type cheeses
0: so it's like the whole uh situation with with beer i guess in that sense
1: yes very similar
0: hey this was really fun thanks a lot
1: you're welcome thank you
0: for more cheese science, visit the Center for Dairy Research at Wisconsin.edu. Also try cheese.com for info on everything from Asiago to Zanetti Parmigiano Reggiano. Next up, Christy Nicholson. She's the host of the weekly Scientific American 60-Second Psych podcast, and she has developed and now runs the new Siam community. To find out more, I spoke to her last week in the library at Scientific American. Hi Christy, how Hi. you
2: doing? Hi Steve, I'm well. How are you? I'm
0: good. So, so you are in charge of the new Scientific American community.
2: I am in charge.
0: What is the community? I'm completely in the dark on this. So, what is the community, and how do people get to it?
2: Yeah, this is something that I think a lot of people have heard tossed around this idea of online communities, and probably most people, certainly in a certain age range, um, may never have heard of online communities. However, for those who have, they're already very old news. They've been around for at least popular for three years now. And certainly, I guess the best definition for people because they've heard of MySpace and Facebook is that the scientific American community is a MySpace for science enthusiasts, scientists, experts, journalists,
0: Okay, so that that translates to the people who know about MySpace and Facebook. But if you don't know about MySpace and Facebook, what is the Scientific American community? Yeah,
2: a better definition. Um, It is a place where you can go to discuss issues and um, interests with like-minded people that also enjoy science and technology communities, online communities have become essentially the new blogs. I mean, blogs have been around. Obviously, most people have heard of a blog. And essentially, it's kind of like a a journal of opinion. Um, But communities have opened up the playing field. Now we've got... Enormous numbers of people chatting about things that interest them. Um, there's also social networks, which are slightly different from online communities. Social networks being the primary use of connecting with friends in a social way. A community, certainly Scientific Americans community has a, has a niche subject that we're involved in, which is of course science and technology.
0: So you can, you can go there and you can have discussions about Issues of interest within science and technology yeah. with, with other users from all over the world.
2: From all over the world. The thing about the internet a lot of people forget is that it's global. So we are talking about global discussions. I mean, the internet is the first time really in history, in our, in our, yeah, in the history of the world that we have a quick, fast, cheap way to get, um, to get together globally on an issue, on a topic, um, which which actually presents a tremendous number of opportunities certainly to do with science whether it be a scientific problem that people are working on or just discussions and debate of issues that it would be better to talk to somebody you know in Germany who's actually there or in Japan I mean and and this can easily happen I mean the internet has broken down all barriers of time and space so
0: what are uh, some of the initial topics that that you've seen be under discussion.
2: Yeah, we've been in beta for about four weeks now and it's already um, started and I'm very impressed with the, the level of discussion. Certainly, it's mostly to do with blogs. What you can do with the Scientific American community is that you can set up your own profile, you can start your own blog. We've established a platform for you to do that. Plus, on top of that, there are also discussions. And you can obviously post photos, videos, all kinds of stuff, audio. I mean, basically, the sky's the limit. Um, in terms of blog posts so far, we've got a number of authors, physicians, physicists, environmentalists, um, debating on everything from land use, preservation to Gary Taub's new book, um, Good Calories, Bad Calories, um, other controversial topics like, um, the woman that you interviewed on the show a couple of weeks ago, Jessica Sachs, talking about microbes, and she just did a po- post on, um, chicken pox parties that parents are apparently having. Um, there's a tremendous, opportunity for uncovering new information. I mean, it's it's certainly something that goes beyond even just interests. Journalists would obviously have, um, and they already have had a lot of interest in blogs in terms of turning up um, undiscovered pieces of research in science or just simply getting an expansive view of the opinions that are out there. Um, the biggest thing with communities, because they're proliferating so quickly, is a lot of people think, well, how can we possibly have time to go to all these communities? And, and they are proliferating. I mean, MySpace, um, actually died back in April, or, you know, what we say has died, because it's kind of plateaued. Facebook has now reached, oh, I don't know how many millions of people, but it's worth 15 billion on the market as of, I guess, last week. So these things are here to stay. And I think it's time that everyone kind of get involved and kind of know, and you don't, you can't get an idea of what a community really is all about until you do get involved and have that back and forth. Um, what the scientific American community is going to be able to offer in any science community for that matter, although the Siam one is the most extensive of its kind that I know about, is that science by its very nature is something that's open for discussion. I mean, it's up there with politics or religion. There's already a company called Ning.com that's out now that you can essentially create your own social network in seconds. It's like Blogger. I mean, it it is all of the newspapers and publications will be setting up their own communities this winter.
0: Is the Siam community refereed in any way? I mean, if I want to start a a discussion of uh, whether or not the world is flat... Do, can I do that?
2: You can absolutely do that. Um, in fact, yes, you can do that. It is moderated to a certain degree. It's self-policed, first of all. So any kind of abuse can be reported by all of its members. So there's that kind of self-policing aspect to it, which is good. Um, people who start... Uh, discussion threads. Like if you were to just dis- to start that discussion thread, you could moderate it and watch it as it goes. I will be watching over most of the things as much as I can. Um, we also can have limited forum discussions where I can say, okay, this week we're going to have two special experts or two authors discuss, you know, nuclear energy, and that can be um, closed to the public so that the public can see it, but it's just their opportunity to kind of bat against each other and then the public can be open to it and add their own opinions. I mean, there's all sorts of things that can happen.
0: How do you get there?
2: Well, you get there by going to our newly re- redesigned site, um, siam.com and up in the upper left corner is a link to community. The other thing that you can get there through, which is, might happen, um, certainly it's, it's one thing that's going to start the, the greatest number of discussions, which is on our new redesigned site, we have an ability to comment on every single article. Every article, a user can come in and put in their own opinion, their own input, say that we're wrong, we're right, wonderful, whatever. And doing that, however, you do have to become a member of our community. So when you go to the site, there's a bit of a, there's an open box Put in your comment, we'll be um, uh, prompting you to join community, and then your discussion is launched.
0: All right, so check out the community. Be a member of the community.
2: Yes, engage, debate, find your muse, stake your place in the new, new media. It's here to stay, folks.
0: Thanks a lot, Christy.
2: You're welcome, Steve. Thanks. See you online. <laughs>
0: Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, the obesity epidemic is playing havoc with the standard dosages of prescription drugs. Story two, agricultural researchers have developed land-efficient, skinny peach trees. Story three, brain studies show that merely having a choice between two outcomes is as satisfying as getting the better outcome. And story four, new studies show that kids with poor attention or behavioral issues in early grade school have virtually no chance to ever catch up academically. Time's up. Story one is true. Overweight people already have health concerns, but obesity also means that some prescription medications, especially antibiotics, may be prescribed at too low a dosage. That's according to a study in the journal Pharmacotherapy. It's a complex issue. Fat absorbs a lot of some prescription drugs, not a lot of others. The article notes that the number of individuals with the highest body mass index went up 600% between 1986 and 2000. Story two is true. We now have far skinnier peach trees. The so-called Crimson Rocket Peach Tree is a tall, thinner tree that nevertheless produces full-size peaches. It was developed by Department of Agriculture researchers. A regular peach tree can spread out over about 16 feet. The new trees only have a width of about 5 feet. You get more peaches per acre at the same production costs. And story three is true. Choice about outcomes seems to be as satisfying as lucking into the better of two outcomes, even though the subject may wind up picking the lesser of the two options. A study with rats found this to be the case. For more info, check out the November 19th episode of the daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science. All of which means that story four about young kids with behavior issues almost certainly doomed to lifelong failure is... Totally bogus, a study of 16,000 kindergarten kids with behavioral problems found that by the fifth grade they were doing math and reading as well as their quieter peers. And another study showed that the brains of kids with attention deficit ultimately developed normally just more slowly than their non-ADHD schoolmates. For more, check out the September 16th edition of News Bites of the Week at Siam.com. <laughs> Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Siam Podcast. You can write to us at podcast at Siam.com and check out numerous features at our brand-new, redesigned Siam.com website, including the community, the blog, and daily trivia, featuring the answers to questions like, What animal has the densest fur? For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mirsky. Thanks for clicking on us. I wouldn't leave you hanging. The animal with the densest fur is the chinchilla with about 60 hairs per follicle. Its favorite song is David Bowie's Let's Dance.